These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of this city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jordan. <clears throat> I had the chance to hear Jordan address the Peace River Presbytery just last week as she presented her statement of call uh, to be received as a candidate for ministry. So uh, let's give Jordan a round of applause. She passed. And she graduates from Princeton Seminary this May and continues on at Rutgers University for her master's in social work and then she conquers the world. <laughs> Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, for this message of the prophet. And uh, it's a message that came a long time ago and to a very different people in a very different time and place, and yet we know, O oh Lord, your word speaks to us in fresh ways because history tends to repeat itself and we tend to find our place, ourselves in places where those of long ago found themselves. And we ask, O oh God, that you will allow this word to fall fresh upon us and that we may hear again your word of encouragement and light and grace and hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of uh, folks at the last service commented on my new glasses. And actually, they're not my new glasses, they're my reading glasses because I forgot my other glasses at home. So you'll have to bear with me as I preach with reading glasses on. <clears throat> so a few years ago, Amanda and I came upon one of those empty nest 
rites of passage when we discovered that we were going to be on our own for Thanksgiving. Our daughter was going to be out of town for the holiday, and the rest of our extended family is far away, so we had to decide what we were going to do with ourselves on this first Thanksgiving on our own. So we decided to go away. We decided to go for a couple days up in Orlando, and I was lamenting to some degree this first non-traditional celebration, but so we made sure to find a hotel that promised a traditional Thanksgiving feast for its guests. There was going to be, this was the thing that was going to ease the pain and the passing of time and the missing presence of our daughter, a good old turkey dinner. So we enjoyed some sights in Orlando, and then later that day came back to the hotel and looked forward to that Thanksgiving feast that awaited us, one that we weren't going to have to labor over, which was an added bonus. So we showed up for our 7 o'clock reservation and were seated, and after enjoying something to drink, the waiter came and asked for our order, and we pointed to the featured item on the menu, turkey feast, turkey and all the trimmings. To which the waiter replied, uh, we ran out of turkey. <laughs> I was not sure I heard him correctly. I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah, we ran out of turkey about a half hour ago. This was the moment I began checking for the candid camera. camera. <laughs> I gathered my emotions and then calmly wondered with the waiter, how, how is it that you ran out of turkey on Thanksgiving Day? Were you caught off guard that this might be the featured favorite choice of your diners? The waiter looked at me with the, hey, pal, I'm not the ordering department expression on his face. May I suggest he countered some chicky with, chicken with turkey gravy. Lots of turkey gravy. We've got lots of turkey gravy, he said. I looked at Amanda, and she kind of nodded her head, and we ordered the roast chicken with extra, extra, extra turkey gravy. And the rest of the evening, we suspended our senses and imagined the foul upon our tongue was what the gravy was telling us. <laughs> and don't think that I didn't order three helpings of pumpkin pie. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just have to go with the ingredients you got. If you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13 or read the book by, James, by astronaut James Lovell, captain of the Apollo 13 crew, you might remember the scene when after the explosion on board that damages their oxygen delivery system, the crew and mission control have to make many quick and urgent decisions. The first decision after weighing the damage is that they cannot go to the moon. The thing that they had trained for for years, they could not attain, landing on the moon. Second decision, a new mission. Mission number one was getting home safely. Nothing else mattered. Third decision, they had to abandon part of the ship because it required too much oxygen. And fourth, they needed to figure out a way to filter the carbon dioxide, the levels of which were rising in their vessel, and they had no hardware store to go to. They had to use what they had. Mission control engineers inventoried every available piece of unnecessary equipment they had on board and designed on the fly a jerry-rigged filter called the mailbox. And it wasn't pretty, but it was all they had, and most importantly, it got them home. Sometimes you just have to go with the ingredients you got. You remember the story of Jesus and his disciples followed by a mob of people wandering the hills and dales of Palestine. When it came to the end of the day and no McDonald's or Burger King nearby, the disciples worried about the crowd, 5,000 or so in number. The crowd is getting hungry, they thought to themselves, and, and wouldn't it be the decent thing to encourage them to head over to the closest town and find for themselves something to eat, every man out for himself? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. 
and the disciples looked rather perplexed. Uh, uh, we, we didn't prepare for this. We, we didn't bring our Coleman stove. We didn't pack our ramen noodles. And Jesus said, well, look for what you got. And so they scrounge up five loaves and two fish, and Jesus says, hmm, looks like enough for a meal. And the disciples say, but there's 5,000 out there. We don't got turkey for 5,000. <laughs> and Jesus says, but we got enough for a meal. And it turns out to be enough for a meal, a really big meal. Sometimes you just have to go with the ingredients you've got. You know, one of the things you learn when you're reading through the story of the Bible is that the history of the people of God is not always a bright and cheerful one. If you're looking for a walk in the park, don't open the Bible. The story of the people of God is no different than the story of people. And sometimes the sun shines, and sometimes the clouds appear, and sometimes the storms descend. The brilliance of creation leads to the fall of Adam and Eve. The promise of Abraham leads to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The deliverance from Egypt leads to 40 years in the wilderness. The magic of Bethlehem leads to the suffering on the cross. Mountaintop here, deep, dark valley there. Some good, some bad. I have a friend who calls it good, bad, both. Life is good, life is bad, life is both. Sometimes you have all the ingredients in the cupboard, and sometimes you can hardly find a crumb. So the people of Israel, to whom Jeremiah is delivering these words, are in the valley. They are in the land, as Isaiah calls it, the land of deep darkness, because they're in exile. They've been pulled from their homes, and they have been dragged away to a foreign land, the kingdom of Babylon. And they are there, they've been there, and forced to live there for generations, not for a day, not for a year, not for a, not for a decade. They've been there for generations, and there isn't much good about it. And they're looking around them themselves, and they don't find anything in the cupboard, not much to hope about. This is just the way they imagine. This is just the way it's going to be. And to these despairing people, Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord and says, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, plans to give you a future with hope. Now, remember, this word comes to Israel when they think they don't have a thing. There is nothing in the freezer, no turkey on the menu, no filter for the CO2. In fact, the only thing they have is hope, which may go without saying because that's what hope is, right? The last thing you got when you don't got anything else. And Jeremiah is inviting them into a hope that God will somehow take the not yet visible ingredients of their situation and somehow turn them into a better future, a sustainable feast. And lo and behold, a new leader arises in Babylon, a new political environment appears, and the international alliances shift. And before Israel knows it, the people of God, the people of God are allowed to go back home after 70 years. For surely I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, plans to give you a future with hope. You see, the fundamental ingredient baked into the story of the people of God is that God's people are always not living the perfect life, right? The people, even though they are sometimes 
void of the bed of roses, though life doesn't always work out the way they plan it, though the news is not always good, there is this deep belief that God is ever seeking to move their story to good. God is always about some redemptive purpose with the materials that are hidden inside their vessel. God is always cooking up a recipe that no matter, in, no matter what ingredients they may have in the cupboard. The great French philosopher and biologist and Jesuit priest Pierre Teilhard de Chantin said it, is th said it this way, not everything is immediately good to those who seek God, but everything is capable of becoming good. Not everything is immediately good to those who seek God, but everything is capable of becoming good. And it's been that way since the, ever since the beginning. I don't know exactly how the world got started, but I do believe that God is the one who got it started. And the Bible tells us that the wind, the Spirit of God, hovered over the deep, and God, like a good cook, began to play with the ingredients of chaos, of disorder, of confusion. God somehow took what God had and began to make, everything, make something, began to cook up a good recipe, began to put together his favorite chili, and God said, oh, this is good. And if you look closely at the recipe, you see it's part oxygen and part hydrogen and part carbon and part uranium and part cayenne pepper and all the rest of the periodic table. Not sure the cayenne pepper's on the periodic table. And somehow God takes it all and out of it makes something good. Now, it's not that there aren't some bad things that happen. Of course, you put some of those ingredients together and you get an explosion. And sometimes we human beings want to do that. And sometimes the wind works in such a way that you get hurricanes. And it's just part of the wildness of creation, the spice and the stew. But at the core of it all, 95% of it all is this ever-creating God who's always trying to come up with a new recipe, always trying to bring about a new dish, a new, a new plan for the future. And it's the people of God who hold this hope, this hope that somehow God is going to make something out of what I've got. Not unlike the farmer out there who's plowing the field, they say that the work of a farmer is 5% of what it takes to bring about a crop. The other 95% are the forces of the ingredients of the universe, the sun and the rain and the soil and the potassium and the magnesium. A farmer farms with the hope that the forces of the universe, the forces of life, will conspire to bring forth fruit. History is filled with people who surrendered what little ingredient they had, and somehow the forces of God's creative spirit so conspired that their, their, a beautiful life ensued. Cripple him, and you have a Sir Walter Scott. Make her a single mother on welfare, rejected by 12 publishers, and you have a J.K. Rowling. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, and you have George Washington. Subject him to bitter religious prejudice, and you have Disraeli. Birth her into slavery. Inflict upon her a as a child, a traumatic head wound, and you have a Harriet Tubman. Strike him down with infantile paralysis, and he becomes an FDR. Have him born black in the racist South, and you have a Martin Luther King Jr. Have him lose his job, fail in business, suffer a numbers breakdown, defeated in a half dozen elections, lose his own child, and you have Abraham Lincoln. For surely, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your harm plans to give you a future with hope. Victor Frankl, survivor of the horror of the Holocaust, came out of the degradation of the camps with this new revelation. He said, it's not what you expect from life that matters. It's what life expects from you.
It's not what you expect from life that matters. What matters is what life expects from you. And you know something? I'm starting to think that one of the great missing ingredients of our day and age is hope. I'm starting to think that one of the things that is really being expected of the church of Jesus is hope. I'm tired of hearing bad news, aren't you? I'm tired of hearing about all the shenanigans of the rich and the famous. I'm tired about hearing all the paralysis in Washington. I'm tired of hearing about the uncivil behavior. I'm tired of hearing people being disrespectful of each other. I'm so tired of people wondering if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and I'm realizing how easy it is for us to lose hope, how to give in to cynicism, how easy it is to despair, how easy it is not to hope in the future. But somehow we may have forgotten that we are the children of God. We are the people of the promise. We are the creation of a God who is always taking what we have and trying to make out of it something good. And maybe that means we just get to get out there and plow our field. We get to give up our lunch for the 5,000. We get to let go of our hoarded money. Maybe we get to be the ones, Church of the Palms, maybe we get to be the ones to whom the people of Sarasota point to and say, ah, those are the people who have hope. Those are the ones who believe in a bright future. Not unlike the young man I encountered at the checkout at Macy's a few years ago, down at the mall, I'm buying some socks, and I start talking to the young Macy's clerk. I kind of always talk to these clerks. And somewhere along the way, he asks me what I do, and I tell him that I'm a pastor, and he asks me where I'm a pastor, and I tell him I'm a pastor at Church of the Palms. And I kind of leave it at that. And when the transaction is over, he asks if he could talk to me for a moment, and I say yes. So we walk over to the corner of the store, and he says, you know, a couple of years ago, things were really, really bad for me, really bad. And I was drinking, and I was doing stupid things, and I was going nowhere, and I ended up living in my car. And a friend finally convinced me that I had to get a grip over my life and that I had to do something. And he told me that there was an AA group meeting at Church of the Palms on Sunday night. And he took me there. And I started going every week. And I started going to other meetings during the week. And I found a sponsor. And the sponsor told me that in the very same building, they hand out bags of groceries during the week, five days a week. And so I started going once a week, getting bags of groceries. And a bunch of other things happened, and now I've been sober for a couple of years, and I got myself this job, and I'm living in an apartment. And I don't go to your church. And I've never been there on Sunday morning. But you have to know that you guys helped save my life. And I just wanted you to know that. For surely I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare and not for your harm. To give you a future with hope. For not everything is immediately good to those who seek God. Everything is capable of becoming good.
Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, that you are the God who's always got a future for us. And sometimes life can encroach upon us and make us wonder if there's really ever any hope, if there's a future, if things are going to work out the way they should. But we know, Lord, that you are a great and gracious and loving God who wants all the best for your children. So we pray, O oh God, that you will help us to take what little hope we have and allow your spirit to fan it and to believe that somehow you'll take those ingredients of our life and you will make something, something amazing and that we'll discover what life expects from us and that we'll be the people of hope for other people, that the world may come to see of this loving, gracious, creating and kind God, the one we know is Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.